0: Good morning, everybody. So, um, yeah, this week we're going to continue in
1: chapter 3 of Revelation and we're going to do the first part of the Church of Laodicea. And this is the last of the seven churches in the book of Revelation in chapters 2 and 3. So I just pray and then we'll get going. Uh, Father, I thank you for the opportunity to be here again, to be studying your word. Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit will teach us and apply. What you are
0: saying to the churches, to us individually, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, the outline, as usual, Revelation 119, part one is Revelation chapter one.
1: Write the things which you have seen, it's where Jesus reveals himself to John. Part two, and the things which are, is chapters two and three, it's the letters to the seven churches. And part three is the things which will take place after this, which is. The rapture, the church in heaven, the tribulation period, second coming of Christ, the thousand-year rule and reign, the great white throne judgment, and in chapters 21 and 22, the new heavens and the new earth.
0: And just really quickly, the seven churches. We've studied uh, Ephesus, the loveless church, loyal but loveless.
1: Uh, Smyrna, the persecuted church, persecuted but pure. Pergamos, the compromising church, faithful but flawed. Thyatira, the corrupt church, committed but corrupt, and Sardis, the dead church, dead and dying, Philadelphia, the faithful or missionary church, underdog yet unstoppable, and now Laodicea, the lukewarm church, crowded but Christless, crowded but Christless, so last week we finished going through the church of Philadelphia, and this week we'll be looking at the church of
0: Laodicea. Now, last week we saw that Jesus had nothing bad to
1: say about the church of Philadelphia. In contrast, Jesus has nothing good to say about Laodicea. And these church ages are consecutive. So one follows the other. So you've got the missionary age where there's great evangelism, you've got great preachers like Spurgeon and, uh, and all these famous missionaries going out. And within a hundred years, we're to where we are now, where it's just an abomination, it is apostasy that the church is in a really bad way, uh, no longer being
0: led by the Holy Spirit.
1: So we're going to see how this happened over the next couple of weeks and, and what it looks like according to the scriptures. And I've got a couple of quotes that will help put things into perspective. We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. That was my guy called David Platt. And the early church was married to poverty, prisons, and persecutions. Today, the church is married to prosperity, personality, And popularity. And that's from a guy called Leonard Ravenhill. So now we're going to jump into Revelation chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 14 to 22. And today we'll actually only cover up to verse 19. So, and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, the Church of Laodicea. Most scholars agree that this church age, the age of apostasy and falling away, started around the year 1900 and will continue until the time of the rapture. So, what is the chief characteristic of this church? It's
0: apostasy and compromise. It's apathy as well. Now, there is still the remnants of the Catholic Church, the Church of Thyatira, the
1: Reformation Church, the Church of Sardis, uh, the Missionary Church, the Church of Philadelphia, but the majority of churches will embrace compromise and apostasy, the characteristics of the Laodicean Church. And I think, at least for me, as I look around, it's pretty obvious that that's the case. And for example, the majority of churches around the world are embracing the prosperity gospel and the word of faith teaching, along with the acceptance of sin in the church, like homosexuality, and also embracing other false doctrines like evolution and the rejection of the verbal inspiration of the scripture. And that's something I'll talk about next week. So. There are relatively few churches who actually or actively proclaim the true gospel of grace and keep themselves untainted from these false doctrines and also keep themselves in the love of God. So before we get into going through verse by verse, I want to read you a quote from a pastor which really helps us to see where the church is headed today. This is like on the ground, what it looks like on the ground, like in talking to people and ministering to people. So this is a quote from a pastor. He's from Africa, and I can't pronounce his name, so I won't try. (laughs) All right. It says, Recently, I visited a family to share the gospel. When I told them I had a fever and could not stay long, they all exclaimed, A man of God? Sick? A few weeks later, a woman asked me why I returned to Cameroon from the United States. I informed her that I came back to preach and teach the old and true gospel of Jesus, because there are many false gospels being preached. She asked what gospels I had in mind. I immediately sensed that she was not comfortable, but carefully and clearly I said that there are false gospels that promise riches, health and well-being in this life, and teach that Jesus is the means to those ends. To this, She made what for her was a solid argument. Jesus became poor so that we might become rich. We are not meant to suffer. God has not destined us for anything but riches and health. Suffering, pain and poverty are not the portion of a true believer because Jesus died to purchase those things for us. He continues, I have many more stories like this. There are more than I can recount because there is nowhere to hide in West Africa from the American idols of health and wealth. They have infiltrated even orthodox churches. Preachers who are faithfully teaching the gospel cannot reach into their members' homes and shut off the televisions that constantly broadcast healing and miracle crusades. My aim is to unmask the prosperity gospel, particularly in its distortion of scripture for the deceitful and hopeless message that it is. Hoping that God might use these words to protect and guide some on the narrow path away from the cancerous teachings. Africa needs cleansing from the foreign deities from the West, the land where health, wealth and
0: might have become God's. End of quote pretty powerful, and that's what's happening all around the world. This false gospel is being propagated, and it doesn't really matter where you go. To one extent or another, this false doctrine is getting out there. All right, let's jump into chapter 3. It all sounds pretty hard, but it does get better. So, chapter 3, verse 14 and to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. So,
1: what was Laodicea like at the time? Well, it was an important, very wealthy banking city with a significant Jewish population. And like other cities in the region, it was a center for Caesar worship and the worship of the healing god Asclepius. Now, there's a few specific things I'm going to go through. So, firstly, Laodicea was known for its prosperity, health, and textile industry. So it prided itself on three things. It's financial wealth. It had an extensive textile industry, and it was famous for making a black woolen fabric. And they also made this very popular and highly valued eye salve, a medicine which was exported all around the world. And that's important to remember those three things because Jesus is going to mention those three things when he talks to them. They were also known for their love of entertainment, and you know what happens when you've got people with money and lots of time. They're seeking pleasure and entertainment. They were also known for their self reliance. Now, in AD 60, there was this massive earthquake which destroyed the city of Laodicea. Now, Rome offered to help rebuild the city, but guess what? Laodicea refused help from Rome. To help rebuild the city, successfully relying on their own resources. They didn't need outside help, they didn't ask for it, and they didn't want it. Laodicea was too rich to accept help from anyone. Tacitus, the Roman historian, tells us, Laodicea arose from the ruins by the strength of her own resources and with no
0: help from us. And that's his spirit of self-reliance, independence. Jesus is going to refer to that too.
1: The city of Laodicea was known for its compromise. So one of the problems that this city had was they didn't have a good water source inside the city or close to the city. So if an enemy surrounded the city, they wouldn't have any water because they could easily cut off the water supply coming into the city. And so the leaders of Laodicea would always compromise with the enemies and negotiate an outcome instead of fighting because they thought if they fought, then they would end up having to give up anyway because they wouldn't have any water. And another famous thing about Laodicea is that it's known for its lukewarm water. Geographically, Laodicea is located halfway between the hot springs of Heriopolis and the cold meltwater originating from the mountains near Colossae. The Laodiceans, because they didn't have a water supply of their own, they built an aqueduct, maybe to both of them, we're not sure, but most likely just to Heriopolis. Now, the water was hot, but by the time it got to them, it was lukewarm. warm. And if they did build one to Colossae, then it started out cold, but again, by the time it got to
0: them, it was lukewarm. warm. So another aspect of this church is that it's ruled by the people
1: and not by God. So when God refers to the other churches, it refers to, for example, the church at Thyatira. Here it says, but to the church of the Laodiceans. So in the Greek word laos, from which we get a word laity, means people and Dice means decision or rule. So the church of the Laodiceans was directed by the people rather than guided by God. It's the church run by democracy or mob rule or popular vote, whatever you want to call it. In other words, the congregation effectively controls the church. Or, on the other hand, it could be run by a pastor who's trying to please people. So either way, it's still controlled by the people. And the next part in verse 14, it says, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, why does Jesus reveal himself to them by saying, I am the Amen? Well, what does it mean? What does Amen mean? We finish our prayer with Amen. So what does it mean? Why do we finish our prayers with amen? Well, it means so be it, or let it be, or I believe. So Jesus is describing himself as the one who believes. He is the whole revelation of God, and he believes the whole revelation of God. And this is what the church of this age really needs to believe, the word revealed by God. And someone said, Jesus is the personification and the affirmation of the truth of god and a quote from hal Lindsay to help explain this and so it's like he is saying remember i am the one when i walked these dusty streets when i stepped out of eternity into time and voluntarily laid aside temporarily the use of my divine powers and became a man and when i walked on this earth as a man i believed every moment the revelation of god And Jesus is saying, by contrast, that this church doesn't. And that's its greatest need. And the next way he reveals himself to them is the faithful and true witness. And this is in contrast to the Laodiceans, who will be shown to be neither faithful nor true. Now, this reminds us of something we talked about before. If we are going to be a witness...
0: To or bear witness to the person of Christ, who he really is, and his purpose. So a quote from John Corson about this is kind of summarized what we did
1: a couple of weeks ago. The Greek word translated witness is martis, from which we get a word martyr. Now what is a witness? One who lives so much like Jesus Christ and is so in love with Jesus Christ that he ends up being crucified even as Jesus Christ was crucified. The Bible puts it this way in Second Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But what do you think the Laodicean would say? Don't talk about suffering. We just want to be positive and happy. You'll never hear a message about suffering, persecution, or martyrdom in a Laodicean church they don't want to think about those things the truth however is that if we
0: are living godly we're going to get nailed no question (laughs) end of quote so only those who are faithful to christ and bear witness to the person of christ who
1: he really is and his purpose are truly part of god's family so we talked before about antipas who wasn't just a witness or martyr because he died for Christ, but more importantly because he lived for Christ. Now it continues on in verse 14, the beginning of the creation of God. So in summary, it's saying that Jesus is the one who created everything. He's the all-powerful God. This reminds us of Jesus' power, and that he knows everything. But cultists often use this verse to say that Jesus is created and therefore not co equal with the Father. But if we dig in a little bit deeper, the Greek word translated beginning here is arche, which means the origin. Basically it's saying Jesus is the origin of the creation of God. So Colossians 1.16 says that God the Father created all things through the Son by the power of the Spirit. And it's Genesis two, And we talked before about when using the term firstborn, for example, it has the idea of prominence or first in prominence rather than first in sequence when it's talking about Christ. And an application for the church today. In the last days, the question is and will continue to be, who is the creator? So what do people believe now? What's commonly taught in many churches? What's evolution? And it says in Peter that it's part of the end-time deception. Things continue as they always have. And so it's no surprise that the church of the later Sins they will be questioning the biblical creation account. And there's also this false doctrine of Christians being little gods. I don't know if you've heard that. Of being a deity like Jesus, who was also a little god, they believe. And therefore we have the same power as Jesus to speak things into existence or to control our lives. And this is the theology or teaching behind the name it, claim it, or word of faith teaching. And we'll come back to that next week. Okay, verse 15 and 16. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So Jesus starts to analyze their behavior. Now, do you notice anything different compared to the way he's spoken to the other churches? Usually after Jesus reveals himself to the church or describes himself to the church, there is a commendation. There is no commendation here. There is no praise for any area of obedience. Jesus jumps straight into rebuke. (laughs) There's nothing good about this church for Jesus to praise. And we know from the other churches that he's always looking for things to praise, but he can't find anything here. Now, it says you are neither... Cold nor hot. And this picture of lukewarmness would resonate immediately with the Christians living in the city of Laodicea because the water they drank every day was lukewarm. It's disgusting even to think about drinking lukewarm water all the time. So basically, Jesus is saying just as the water you drink is disgustingly lukewarm, you are disgustingly lukewarm and neither hot nor cold. So what does it mean spiritually? Well, it's a picture of indifference, apathy, and compromise. So the lukewarmness is like a picture of indifference, apathy, and compromise. It tries to play the middle. Too hot to be cold and too cold to be hot. (laughs) In trying to be
0: both things, they end up being nothing. And eventually Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And... um, Jesus says, I could wish that you
1: were cold or hot. And Guzik says, what Jesus wanted to change in them and us, as much as anything, is the deceptive playing of the middle, trying to please both the world and Jesus. Okay, The deceptive playing of the middle, trying to please the
0: world and Jesus. It's like having a foot in the world and a foot in the church, or well, in the kingdom. And it says, I could wish that you were cold or hot. And
1: this points to another aspect of lukewarmness, and that is uselessness. So another attribute or aspect of lukewarmness is uselessness. Lukewarm water is useless. Hot water heals, cold water refreshes, (laughs) but lukewarm water is useless for either purpose. It's like Jesus is saying, if you are hot or cold, I could do something with you, but because you are neither, I will do nothing. The lukewarm false convert has enough of Jesus to satisfy a craving for religion, but not enough for eternal life. So the lukewarm false convert has enough of Jesus to satisfy a craving for religion, but not enough for eternal life. Now I just want to go through what Jesus meant by hot and cold, the way I understand it. So an example of cold. The thief on the cross was cold toward Jesus. Remember, he was blaspheming Jesus, but then he clearly saw his need and because he clearly saw his need for forgiveness, he was able to respond. He recognized that he needed forgiveness. So he was cold and then he could respond. An example of hot, well, John the Apostle was hot towards Jesus and enjoyed a relationship of love. There was sweet fellowship there, so that's like hot in fellowship. Okay. An example of lukewarm, as a false convert, Judas was lukewarm, following Jesus enough to be considered a disciple, yet not giving his heart over to Jesus in fullness. He was a false convert. So the lukewarm false convert has enough of Jesus to satisfy a craving for religion, but not enough for eternal life. Now, in saying that, it's also, I believe, possible to be a true believer and still be lukewarm. You're just backsliding. You're just lost your zeal, lost your enthusiasm.
0: And like all churches, lukewarm churches are made off of true and false converts. Did you know that deep down,
1: there is no one more miserable than the lukewarm Christian? They have too much of the world to be happy in Jesus, but too much of Jesus to be happy in the world. <laughs> but how could Jesus say, I could wish that you were cold. Well, we know that he wants us to be hot, and we'll come back to that when we get to Revelation chapter 19,
0: because the word zealous is a similar word to the word used here for hot. Why is he saying, well, you'd be better off being cold? Well,
1: lukewarm is really a state of deception where people are blind to their true spiritual condition. They are blind or oblivious to their true spiritual need. And this is why I believe the lukewarm church is so dangerous. It causes people to think that they are saved, but they are not. Many of them are not. They, as Ray Comfort would say, they have had a genuine false conversion experience. (laughs) An emotional experience that makes them feel good, but it's not true. Salvation. And I've got two quotes here from Spurgeon as he's talking about this concept of being lukewarm. And the main point of it is that people who profess to believe in Jesus but who are living lukewarm lives actually turn
0: people away from Jesus. So here we go. Here's Spurgeon. Now, lukewarm professor of faith,
1: what do unbelievers see in you? They see a man who says he is going to heaven, but who is only travelling at a snail's pace. He professes to believe that there is a hell, yet he has tearless eyes and never seeks to snatch souls from going down to the pit. They see before them one who has to deal with eternal realities, yet he is but half awake. One who professes to have passed through a transformation so mysterious and wonderful that there must be, if it is true, a vast change in the outward life as the result of it. Yet they see him as much like themselves as can be. He may be morally consistent in his general behavior, but they see no energy in his religious character. You see that lethargy there, the apathy that he's talking about? So... You believe something, but you're not really living by it. There's no real change.
0: There's no fire in your belly. Another quote from Spurgeon The careless unbeliever is lulled
1: to sleep by the lukewarm professor of faith, who, in this respect, acts the part of the siren to the sinner, playing sweet music in his ears and even helping to lure him to the rocks where he will be destroyed. This is a solemn matter, beloved. In this way, great damage is done to the cause of truth. And God's name and God's honor are compromised by inconsistent professors of the faith. I pray you either to give up your profession of faith or be true to it. If you really are God's people, then serve him with all your might. But if Baal be your God, then serve him. If the flesh be worth pleasing, then serve the flesh.
0: But if God be Lord paramount, then cleave to him. I really like those two quotes. I know it's old English and
1: it's a bit hard to understand, but I think the main point there, i just read one sentence again. I pray you either give up your profession of faith or be true to it. If you want to serve God, then serve Him, or if you want to be in the world, then be in the world. But
0: choose one. Be hot or be cold. All right, verse 17. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not
1: know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Oh, dear. Now, notice the two things here. It says, Because you say, and that's the Laodiceans' understanding of themselves, I am rich, etc., and do not know that you are, is Jesus' understanding of them. So. To this Laodicean church, which wasn't talking about the reality of sin, the need for repentance, or the cross of Christ, which didn't speak of witnessing, standing, and living for eternity, Jesus said, you think you're rich, but you're impoverished. You think you're happy, but you're miserable. So basically, the church and Laodicea were blind to their spiritual poverty. They looked at their spiritual condition and said, rich, wealthy, we have need of nothing. They're the opposite of what Jesus said in Matthew 5.3 about blessed are the poor in spirit. I'll just read that to you. God blesses those who are spiritually poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. So what do you need to be to enter the kingdom of heaven? You need to be spiritually poor. That refers to humility. We need to come and realize that we are sinners and that we cannot do it ourselves. We need Jesus. So what's the application here? The Laodiceans put their trust in material prosperity in outward luxury and in physical health. They felt like they didn't need anything. And in their city, they really didn't. They had the eye ointment, they had the clothing, they had the money. Now, spiritually... They weren't doing too good, as we know. So I'm going to give you a little example here to help you see what's happening in the spiritual realm. Okay, So I'm going to use hypothermia as an example. Hypothermia is when you're cold and your body temperature starts dropping. Initially, you start to shiver. You start feeling cold. But guess what? If you continue to get cold, if you continue to lose your body heat, you will actually stop shivering. You are about to die, but you're not aware of it. So I looked up a medical site, and this is how it describes the symptoms of hypothermia, and you see how this lines up with the lukewarm Christian. As hypothermia sets in, it becomes more challenging to think, move, and take preventative action. So basically your mind becomes foggy and unable to think logically. This is dangerous because it means that people who have hypothermia will not seek to keep themselves warm and safe. The body starts to slow down as the temperature drops. If the person stops shivering, it can be a sign that their condition is getting worse. The individual is at risk of lying down, falling asleep and dying. In some cases, people will
0: paradoxically remove their clothes just before this occurs. So the colder the body gets, the more
1: fuzzy the brain gets, and basically they're not realizing the seriousness of the predicament that they're in. They're about to die of hypothermia. But the colder it gets, the less they're aware of their sickness. This is happening spiritually to countless millions of professing Christians around the world today who hear teaching like God just wants you to feel good about yourself and come to Jesus and he will solve all your problems.
0: Just pray this prayer and many other false teaching. Another application
1: here is that compromise destroys our witness for Christ and Spurgeon touched on this I just want to Come back to it. There's a quote by Havner The cause of Christ has been hurt more by Sunday morning bench warmers who pretend to love Christ, who call him Lord, but do not do his commandments, than by all the publicans and sinners.
0: <laughs> so,
1: now we're still in verse 17, and where it says, And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, think back to what we learned about the actual city of Laodicea. This Laodicean city was famous for its wealth. But, spiritually speaking, the Christians of that city were wretched, miserable and poor. Laodicea was famous for its healing eye salve, which helped people to see and get better from eye diseases. But the Christians in that city were spiritually blind. Laodicea was famous for its fine clothing, but the Christians of the city were
0: spiritually naked. So I've got three contrasts on the board here. And these contrasts are quite shocking.
1: Think about what they're blind to. Okay, Think about the contrast between what they think they are and what they really are. The contrast between what they see and what Jesus sees. And the contrast between the wealth and affluence of their city and their own spiritual bankruptcy. So, we need to recognize that what Jesus sees in us can be very different to how we see ourselves. We can be deceived. So, who is it that causes this blindness? What is it that causes this blindness? Well, I've got the verse up here. It's 2 Corinthians 2, 3 and 4 it says if the good news we preach is hidden behind the veil it is hidden only from people who are perishing that is unbelievers satan who is the god of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe they are unable to see the glorious light of the good news they don't understand this message about the glory of christ who is the exact likeness of god so why is it they can't see or understand the true gospel of grace because they are being deceived by Satan. How does he do that? He uses a false gospel. Now what takes away the blindness? Well, it's the good news. It's the true gospel. And that's what we need to teach to people. To wake them up to their sinful nature, we use the law to show them that they are sinners and they are going to be eternally damned unless they repent. Second Timothy one ten. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. So listen to that. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. So how do we win these people back? Well, they need to know the true gospel. They need the gospel. They need the true gospel. So how do we apply these words, wretched, miserable, poor, blind and naked, to our spiritual condition? Well, the word wretched in the Greek means wretched, miserable, distressed. So what's Jesus saying about them? Well, it reminds me of Isaiah 64.6. What does that say? While we are all infected and impure with sin, when we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. So what can make us more wretched, miserable, and distressed than our separation from God by our sin? Now the next word is miserable. And in Greek, this word means to be in such a sad and miserable state that you are to be pitied. It's like a sympathetic sorrow. Oh, those poor people. So this Greek word translated here as miserable is also used in 1 Corinthians 15.19 where it's translated pitiable or pitied, and it gives us a good idea of what Jesus meant when he called them miserable or pitiable. It's first Corinthians fifteen, seventeen to nineteen. It says, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost, and if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Or, you could put the word miserable on there, or we are more miserable than anyone in the world. You See what it's saying there? So it's like Jesus sees this church who thinks that things are going so well, who think that they have it so together, who think they have it all worked out, and he thinks, oh dear, these poor suffering people, how sad it is to be in their deceived, wretched condition. I really pity them. So that's what he's saying there. Now, poor. What does it mean by poor? Well, the last day's church thinks that it's rich, but in God's eyes they are poor. Why? Well, because what man produces is poor. Wealth in God's eyes is not money, the beautiful building, or any other resources. Rather, it's the church producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is rich. So a church which is not producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, love, truth, righteousness, obedience is poor, while a church that is producing the fruit of the Holy Spirit is rich. This is true wealth. And now blind. A good example is Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verses 3 and 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, "Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things?" Wow, it's pretty blunt, eh? Hey? So why was Nicodemus spiritually blind? Because he had not been born again. He only had human or intellectual wisdom, not the wisdom that comes from God. And the only way to understand the things of the Spirit is to have the Spirit living inside of you. So Jesus is saying that the Church of the Last Days would be basically spiritually blind and would not be able to understand the things of God. And that's pretty much true as you look around a lot of churches. Now, naked. Why did Jesus use the word naked? Well, self-righteousness. I believe it's talking about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness does not clothe a person before God. Only the righteousness that comes from God. So we need to be clothed in Christ's righteousness, which only happens when a man is born again. Now think about what God did for Adam and Eve after they sinned. Adam and Eve made coverings of leaves, but God removed those coverings of leaves and gave them something else. It was an animal skin. So right from the beginning, there is this picture of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus dying in my and your place, And this teaching, this idea, has been around since basically the beginning of time. So the only way to be clothed is to put on Christ and receive Jesus' perfect life, to have that imputed to you. Otherwise, in God's eyes, you are naked. You are not righteous. Put on those white robes as it speaks about. Now, another application What do people think of when you hear the word church today? If you did a survey, what do you think people would say if you said, I'll give you the word and you tell me the first thing that comes into your head? For most people, I believe they would say it's a building with a steeple on it or a cross, something like that. But that's not the church. That's where the church meets. (laughs) I've given this illustration before where the upset old lady stands up in the Bible study and says, Pastor, did you know that some of these young people here are desecrating this sanctuary because they're chewing gum? The pastor
0: replied and said, Madam, the churches are chewing the gum. So, we are the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit.
1: So if you receive the gift of pardon that Jesus died to give us, we are the church. He lives in us. But this has been lost in our culture What do people look for in a church? They look for a big building. They look for a powerful organization. You have the Catholic Church, Baptist Church, Uniting Church. And to most people, the greater and more ornate the building, then the better the church is. That's what they think. And the bigger the organization, well,
0: it must be a pretty powerful church.
1: But do you think God sees it that way?
0: No. He looks to the inside. There's nothing wrong with having a nice church building,
1: but the problem in many churches is that the focus is on the building and the experience and I've been to a church went over East, the screen was like two stories high, and they had stars on the roof and lots of lights and uh, stage lights and the service began with a countdown on the screen and then the band starts to play, and it was like <laughs> a concert and so this is. One way of explaining of what Jesus means when he says to the church, you say, I am rich, I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. It represents a focus on the external. And it can be just an emotional experience in place of a true move of the spirit. And one final application is, wealth is not an evidence of faith. And here's a very sad but typical story. There was a preacher who faithfully taught verse by verse through the Bible um, using expository teaching. He was a really good Bible teacher. But then the prosperity gospel people got a hold of him and the positive confession people got a hold of him. And now he gets up and says, you know, if you believe God like I do, you would have several Rolls Royces like I do. (laughs) He went from expository teaching breaking down the word of God, explaining it and building people up in their faith to saying, you know, if you believe God like I do, you would have several Rolls Royces like I do. And this is the curse of the later C age. And no wonder God pities this church. No wonder God has nothing good to say about this church because they are so deceived. In verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So we're going back to those three main things about the city of Laodicea, the wealth, the textile industry and the eye salve. And again, uh, I counsel you to buy from me. They have to go back to their spiritual poverty. They have to see that they are spiritually poor. They have to humble themselves. As long as we are proud and believe that we can meet the need, our own needs, for wealth, clothing, and sight, and whatever other need we think we might have, we will never receive them from Jesus, what he wants to give us. We need to seek these things from Jesus instead of relying on ourselves. So, I've got an example here. It's like we're holding on to a box with two hands. It's a big box. And it's full of rubbish. And it represents all our human achievements, our self-righteousness, our self-effort, everything we've worked hard for. And Jesus is standing in front of us, holding a box full of real treasure and precious promises, things that he wants to do for us and give to us freely, things we cannot do for ourselves. Now, the only way we can receive the box Jesus has to give us is to put down the box of rubbish that we are holding. Does that make sense? You can't receive what God wants until we've put aside what we are already holding, what we are clinging to. But it's hard because we don't like to see our own efforts as worthless. It's a bit of a long scripture, but I think it's worth a read. It's Philippians 3, 3-9. to And this is Paul going through this transition of understanding that it's not about his self-effort, his own efforts and his achievements, but rather it's just about knowing Christ. So it's uh, Philippians 3, verses 3 to 9. It says, We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Verse 7, I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. i repeat that verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I'll just read that bit again. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law, rather I become righteous through faith in Christ, for God's way of making us right with himself depends on
0: faith. So this is a really good scripture to kind of bring into focus what this church needs to do. And gold refined in the fire... If they receive from
1: Jesus what he wants to give them, then they will be rich. Now, white garments, we've already alluded to this. What Jesus wants to give them is his righteousness. When we are clothed in his righteousness, he takes away the shame of our nakedness, which is our self-righteousness. We cannot cover ourselves. Those plant leaves, those tree leaves are not going to do the job. Now interestingly enough, the merchants of Laodicea were famous for making a glossy black wool they used to make beautiful garments. So the color of the cloth they used to make and the clothes they used to make was
0: black. So remember, our righteousness is like filthy rags. They were,
1: you know, really proud of their black clothing. But God wants to clothe them with white garments which represents God's or Christ's perfect righteousness. We need to take off our self-righteousness, stop trusting in our own goodness, and put on or trust in or receive Jesus' perfect righteousness, the perfect life Jesus lived here on earth, and that is credited to our account when we first believe. And then it says in verse 18, Anoint your eyes with eye salve, So if they received from Jesus the healing of their spiritual sight, then they would be able to see. But how does this happen? Well, there must be an awareness of the problems in our heart and the trouble in our soul before we can see. Now, what did David pray in Psalm 139? Search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. So what we need to do is realize that we can be easily deceived and check ourselves Ask God to reveal if there's anything in us that shouldn't be there. Because remember, like the person suffering with hypothermia, if you're getting spiritually cold, you're becoming like numb and you're not realizing the seriousness of your predicament that you are moving away from God. The more distant you become from God, then the harder it is to know that you have actually fallen from God. So we need to be praying. God, show me where i need to come closer to you someone said how long has it been dear saint since you've been on your face before the lord saying search me concerning the words on my lips the bitterness in my heart and the thoughts on my mind and john corson says truly confession precedes vision we need to confess our sin then god will give us our vision back and buy from me this is interesting where do we get the money to buy these things from Jesus? Do we have to work for them? Well, no. And I've got this awesome verse. It's Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. And this gives us the answer of how we buy these things from Jesus. Isaiah 55, verses 1 and 2. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk. Without money, and without price. Don't you like that? Jesus says, come and buy it, but guess what? It's free. It's a gift. Verse 2 continues, why do you spend money for what is not bread, and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and let your soul delight itself in abundance. So, we can seek to do things on our own using our own independence, our own resources, or we can go to God, who gives us freely. Yes, come by wine and milk without money and without price. And verse nineteen, just to finish off, as many as I love, Phileo, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous. And as I said before, that word zealous relates to the word hot. Therefore, be zealous or hot and repent. Now, Jesus has just given a really sharp rebuke. He's saying, You think you're this, but you're actually this, and you're opposite to what you actually think you are. It couldn't really be a harder rebuke. But has Jesus lost his love or lost his affection for this wayward church? Well, no. And the truth is that God only disciplines those he loves. And I'm really glad that this particular verse is in the Bible because I'm so often layered a scene in my attitude toward God. So lukewarm, apathetic, and half-hearted just going through the motions and not really putting God first. It's so easy to get into that complacency there. But just listen to what God says. As many as I love, and it's filio love. So it's not agape, unconditional love. It's filio, the word for brotherly love. Love. Jesus' heart to this church is, even though I rebuke you and chasten you, I am still your friend. I love you deeply as my friend. So what's the difference between using the word agape and filio? Well, Jesus doesn't just love agape us, agape love us, and that is he always does what is best for us no matter how we treat him. But the filio Love adds another aspect to it. It adds the aspect of fellowship. God wants to have fellowship with us. He loves us and he likes us. <laughs> we can love our enemies, but not really like them. But God loves us and he likes us. He loves being around us. He wants to have that brotherly affection, The brotherly love with us. And so for me, it's just like how gracious is our God These people are so blind, so destitute. They're ignoring him. We're going to find next week he's knocking on the door. Waiting to come in, waiting to have fellowship. So therefore it says in verse 19, Be zealous and repent. So he commanded them to make a decision to repent and continue in zeal. Be zealous, be hot. That's what it means, be hot. Be on fire in the sense that God's love is flowing through you. Turn around. Repent, Jesus says. Don't look to your own resources, riches. Don't be so independent. Don't be
0: so self-reliant because you are really bankrupt. Turn around and look to me. So I'm just going to finish with a quote from Spurgeon and then a verse. The quote is,
1: from Spurgeon, when you and I shall be stretched upon our dying beds, I think we shall have to regret, above everything else, our coldness of heart. Among the many sins, perhaps, this would lie the heaviest upon our heart and conscience. I did not live as I ought to have done. I was not as earnest in my Lord's cause as I should have been. Then will our cold sermons like sheeted ghosts march before our eyes in dread array. Then will our neglected days start up, each one seeming to wave its hair as though it were one of the seven furies and to look right into our hearts and to make our very blood curdle in our veins. So (laughs) the idea there is Spurgeon is saying on our deathbed, if we come to that. What are we going to regret the most? He's saying that possibly the sin we'll regret the most is apathy, is not loving the Lord with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I was not as earnest in my Lord's cause as I should have been. So what's the encouragement for us to finish with? It's Second Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. It says, because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit and let us work towards complete holiness because we
0: fear God. So, Father, I just thank you for this very powerful
1: rebuke to this church. But, Lord, we know that we can be apathetic sometimes too. We know that our hearts can stray. We can compromise. And Lord, I just pray that we will be praying, Lord, search me and try me. Lord, show us what's in our hearts. And Lord, if there's anything we need to repent of, even if it's just an attitude, show us, Father, so that we can be on fire again for you. We can be hot. We can be zealous for you. We'll be walking with you, abiding with you, and not just one foot in the world and one foot in the church, so to speak. So I just pray that you'll help us today to be honest with ourselves and to be really making sure that there's nothing hindering us from serving you, especially
0: our hearts, if they're apathetic or cold. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.